we start this amazing book. And as is my tradition, whenever I start a new book, the first message, I try to cover the entire book. I want you to see it from a bird's eye view. I want you to know what this book is about. I want you to be able to view it as from above and see the whole thing from start to finish so that when we get into the, the forest, you won't lose the forest for the trees because we're going to do this in some detail. I told my children yesterday that we were going to do the whole book and they all got quiet. <laughs> and little Wesley woke up this morning almost crying, saying, Daddy, please tell me how many chapters you're going to do. And will we take a break for lunch in the service? <laughs> Thirteen chapters. We'll see. What we're going to see here is the glory of Christ. The whole book is about the glory of Christ. And it speaks to us because we are tempted to become sidetracked from the glory of Christ and set our hearts and our affections and our minds on religion. And it's not about the systems. It's not about... Um, making up something that we think will please God. It's not even anymore about the old system that God gave. It is now all about Christ and His glory. When it became clear in 1553 that young King Edward of England was certainly going to die, the Protestant leaders of his time hatched a plan to retain the throne. They didn't want it falling back into Catholicism. And though Mary was acknowledged by all as next in line, they coerced the dying Edward into advocating the proper line of succession. In Mary's place, they put on the throne a 16-year-old girl. She is known as the best educated woman in England at the time, at 16 years of age. She knew Greek. She knew Hebrew. She knew her theology better than Better than I? Her name was Lady Jane Grey, a cousin of Mary. And they put her in Mary's place as a fervent Protestant. And though she was fourth in the line of succession, and placing the crown on Jane's head and their hands on her shoulders, the lords and bishops thought they had made the Reformation safe in England. But Providence did not cooperate. Attempts to arrest Princess Mary when she came from Scotland failed, and she began moving toward London. Everywhere she was hailed as queen, a popular uprising gained steam around a woman who herself was anything but popular. By the time Mary arrived in London, her claims were universally supported. And so, nine days into her rule, Lady Jane Grey had the crown toppled from her head, and she fell on her knees, begging her cousin's forgiveness. Within hours, she found herself sitting in a dark, damp cell awaiting Bloody Mary's wrath, and wanting to make a trophy of her, and perhaps even with a genuine concern for her soul, Mary then sent her spiritual advisor, 
and priest confessor by the name of Feckleham to secure Lady Jane's spiritual capitulation, to call her to recant from her beliefs, to force her to profess one Lord by a different faith, namely the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. When the priest entered her cell, Lady Jane knew that her life hung in the balance. The famous interview was recorded for us, word for word. First, Feckleham tried to get Lady Jane to deny salvation by faith alone, arguing the Catholic position that works are necessary to be saved. Sixteen years old, this was her reply. I deny that. And I affirm that faith only saveth. We may not say that works profit our salvation, for when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants, and faith only in Christ's blood saves us. Next, Feckleham tried to make her profess transubstantiation, the doctrine that says that when we come to the Lord's table, we actually eat the physical body and drink the physical blood of Christ. The priest pointed out Jesus' statement when he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Lady Jane responded, I grant that he saith so, and so he saith, I am the vine and I am the door, but he never more for that is a door or a vine. God forbid that I should say that I eat very, the very natural body and blood of Christ, for then neither I should pick, pluck away my redemption or else there would be two bodies of Christ or twelve bodies when his disciples ate his body and it suffered not until the next day. Feckleham insisted that she accept the Pope's interpretation of the scriptures. But she responded, no. I ground my faith upon God's word and not upon the church. For if the church be a good church, the faith of the church must be tried by God's word and not God's word by the church. And I say that it is an evil church and not the spouse of Christ, but the spouse of the devil that alters the Lord's supper. Shall I believe this church? God forbid. By the end of the interview, Feckleham was disappointed, to say the least. And taking his leave, he said he was sorry, for since she would not recant her doctrine, he was sure that he would never meet her again. The teenage princess looked at him through tears and replied, True it is that we shall never meet again, except God turn your heart. For I am assured, unless you repent and turn to God, you are in an evil case. And I pray, God, in the bowels of his mercy, to send you his Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart that you might be saved. Sixteen years of age. Her life was on the line. On the morning of February 12, 1554, Lady Jane Grey, after her husband was taken up on the hill outside of London Tower and executed, he was 15. She was taken to a private execution chamber in the London Tower and beheaded. But not before she was able to encourage a man by the name of John Fox to compile a written history of Christian martyrs designed to strengthen true believers to stand firm in their faith in Christ alone as the great and only hope 
of salvation. The resulting book became one of the great Christian classics of that age. Today it is known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now you and I living in the United States, it's unlikely that any of us will face the kind of life or death decision that Lady Jane Grey had to make that fateful day more than five centuries ago. But the reality is that hundreds of thousands of men and women and children since the inception of the church have indeed faced this question, this choice either to deny Christ and live or to cling to Christ and die. And this is not just ancient history either. In fact, today it is commonly known that more Christians lost their lives for their faith in the 20th century, listen, than in all the previous centuries combined. In fact, to this very day, this very day, men and women or children and children are being forced to choose between life and Christ. And not all of them will choose well. Some of them will recant. Some of them will turn their backs on Christ out of fear of pain or fear of ostracism from the community or fear of death. The apostles knew what it was like to face this kind of moment of decision. Often they were brought before the authorities and they were commanded to no longer preach in the name of Christ. They were threatened. They were beaten. They were ostracized from the community. They were tortured. And they were killed. But they would not turn their backs on Christ, no matter what the cost. They would not recant, even to their last breath. And it leaves us asking a question. Why? What is so important that you would give your life I mean, is there anything we Americans would die for? Why were they willing to lay down their lives? Answer? They were convinced that Jesus Christ is a treasure infinitely more valuable than possessions, infinitely more valuable than comfort, infinitely more valuable than their freedom, infinitely more valuable than life itself. They knew something we don't know. They knew the glory of Christ. The author of Hebrews said of Moses in chapter 11, that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the, all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. He knew that there was something more rewarding than wealth and comfort and freedom and even life on this earth. And so he gave it away. When the author of the book of Hebrews wrote his letter that we begin studying this morning, he understood that the recipients were being pressured to turn their backs on the Lord Jesus in favor of a more socially respectable religion. These were members of a Jewish church in the middle of the first century. Apparently, they were 
really no strangers to persecution. I hope you have your Bible because we're going to be looking at, at a lot this morning. Look at chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. The author writes, For you have need of endurance, that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised, for yet... Oh, excuse me, that was 36. Look at 35. Starting with verse 34. You, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. These people were persecuted. They were a persecuted church. You see, it's easy to stay the course when the winds are fair and the seas are calm. But these beloved brothers were facing persecution. These were members of a Jewish community who apparently faced a lot of persecution. Back in verse 32, but remember the former days while, when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation, and partly by, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You were persecuted, and your friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ around you were persecuted as well. This was a persecuted church. They knew what it was like to have the authorities crash into their homes and take whatever they wanted. They had felt the pain of being ostracized from their friends and neighbors in the community. They had experienced the difficulties associated with caring for brothers and sisters in Christ who were in jail, knowing that to go and care for them was to have your own reputation smeared. They had tasted real suffering. They had endured substantial persecution. They had stood firm through some really difficult days. But now, now their resolve was beginning to wear thin. Now their resistance was beginning to wane. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be encouraged. And they needed to be warned. And that's why the next verses, 35 and 36, Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have not, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You see, it's easy to stay the course when the course is easy. It's easy to keep the boat on course when the seas are for you. It's easy to keep the plane going in the right direction when there's no crosswind. But when the storm bears down upon us, when the winds are high, the question remains, will we be found faithful? Will we stay on course or will we abandon ship? Will we remember and believe God's unshakable promise that the afflictions of this life, according to the Apostle Paul, are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison if we are found faithful in them? The book of Hebrews was written to people very much like you and me. There are some distinct similarities between they and us. 
Like us, the Hebrews were second-generation Christians. Maybe some of us are third, fourth, fifth, sixth-generation Christians. But none of us are first-generation in, in the apostolic sense. They'd never seen Jesus or heard his voice or witnessed his miracles. We know that. Go back to chapter 2, verse 3. Verse 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels provided proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. It was spoken by Christ. The apostles heard it. They brought it to us. And now you have it. They were like us. The author indicates that these dear saints had come to a knowledge of Jesus through others who had never heard him speak. They had never seen him work. Like us, all of their knowledge about Jesus was secondhand. They came to him by faith in the message that was preached, not by seeing and believing, but by hearing the word of God. Accompanied by grace, which produced faith unto eternal life. Secondly, we're like them because these were not new believers. I look at this audience and I can see very few that I wonder if they are new believers. Most of us have known the Lord Jesus for years. For the most part, these brothers and sisters had known the Lord for some time. The problem was they had, they had not grown to maturity. Look in chapter 5, verse 12. The author says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, it's easy to think we're mature because we know a lot of stuff about the Bible. But the real test of spiritual maturity is when we're faced with the choice at the office or on the team or in the school or among our peers or against some trial. The choice to decide between faithfulness to Christ or some promise of pleasure or relief apart from Christ. But we are like these Brothers and sisters in other ways. Third, these believers were like us in that they were being called to remain true to the exclusive claims of Christ in the face of more socially acceptable religious options. For their part, these Jewish believers lived in a time when the temple of the Lord was likely still standing. Most scholars believe that because this book is all about the Jews and their system, and how Christ is supreme over that. And there is no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. That leads us to believe that it was written sometime before 70 A.D., somewhere between 45 and 65, perhaps, A.D. These people were living while the temple was still there. They could see it. They could take sacrifices if they wished to. Everybody they knew was Jewish. And most everybody they knew, perhaps their extended families, were practicing Jews. That is, they were still enveloped in the old system. 
The temple of the Lord was still standing and the sacrificial system was still intact. And so in order to become Christians, they would have had to turn their backs upon the faith of their extended families. They had to turn away from the faith of their fathers. Can you imagine? Some of you can. Because I know some of you have had to turn your backs on the teaching of your parents in this regard. Loving them, praying for them, pleading with them perhaps, but breaking from their faith, breaking from their false religion. They would have given up the sacrifices, the festivals, the traditions, because they had only served shadows in those things, shadows of Christ who was the substance. It would have been so easy to recant and turn their back on Christ and go home. I mean, why be persecuted? Can you imagine Lady Jane Grey? She could have said, I don't want to have any part in that. Do you know, I, 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 might, I might get hurt. I'm 16 years old. I have my whole life. i got a brand new husband. I don't even know him. It was an arranged marriage. I have no children. I have no heritage. I have no legacy. It could have easily been that choice for her, but she would not. By the same token, many of us have turned from false religious systems. Catholicism, Mormonism, paganism, political correct postmodernism, you name it. This is America. We're the melting pot. Pretty much every religion that exists is here. But they all have one thing in common. In fact, many things in common. They hate Christ and or they deny the power and the supremacy of his work once for all, to all who believe. In some way, every other system believes that the way to salvation is through righteousness, a righteousness that is our own, a righteousness that we produce by our works. Every system of religion says, do what is right and you will be saved. Only true biblical Christianity says, it is not by any works of righteousness, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that you are saved. It is not what you do. It is what He has done. And that is all. In the face of conflict with those we love, it would be easy just to go back to the things the old ideas, the old religious systems. But to do so means we must deny Christ. The question then is, so why not? Why not? Why not turn back? To this the author of Hebrews says, Stand firm, beloved. This world can offer no promise that is not infinitely eclipsed by the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. He is supreme over everything, and nothing is excluded. And so before we begin thinking through this amazing text of Scripture verse by verse and thought by thought, and in some cases, as my kids have pointed out, word by word, Dad, are you going to preach on more than one word today? Maddie's wanting to see this done. We were thinking about giving her the tapes for Hebrews for her graduation present. I don't know. 
I want to invest the rest of our time looking at this book as a whole so we can clearly see the supremacy of Christ over everything that might tempt a Jewish believer to turn away from Christ. And by that, to see God's call on our lives to exalt the supremacy of Christ and joyfully bring ourselves under it for His glory and for our eternal salvation. And so let's take a few minutes to listen and to learn. Turn all the way back to chapter 1. The first point the author of the Hebrews wants to establish is that Christ is superior over the Old Testament prophets. And so the very first thing he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The first thing out of the chute is not greetings. It is not an introduction. We have no idea who this brother was who wrote this book. And that's appropriate, I think, in a book whose sole purpose is to exalt Christ he left himself anonymous. The believers who were receiving it knew who this was. We have no idea. All the author wanted to do was exalt the Lord Jesus. And the very fair first thing he says to these beloved saints is that Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Yes, God had sent the prophets. These were not false prophets. This was not some new invention of a, of a system of revelation. These were from God. These weren't cultists. These weren't false teachers. They were God's messengers. He had sent these prophets. But in the end, he sent his son. The prophets were great. They served their purpose. They presented us with the revelation of God. But they are nothing compared to God's son. He is the creator of all that exists. He is the sustainer of all that exists. He is the heir, the author says, of all that exists. He is higher in rank than all of the Old Testament prophets put together. When the Lord really wanted to speak, he came to the earth himself and spoke by his own mouth through his son. Furthermore, he did something none of the prophets could ever do. He made purification for sins and sat down upon the very throne of God. And so the first thing that we need to see is that Christ is superior to any human prophet. Any human prophet. Even the ones that were sent by God. Muhammad was wrong. Jesus is not just one of the prophets. He is the only son. Furthermore, Christ is not only superior to the prophets, but starting in verse 4, Christ is superior even to the angels of God. Look in verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, 
and he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, that is the father, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be the father of him, and he will be a son to me. To which of the angels did God ever say that? This one that I am reminding you of and turning your hearts toward is God the Son. He is greater than the prophets. He is greater even than the angels. And by the way, the order of this is brilliant. If he had jumped into saying Christ, Jesus, from Nazareth is greater than Moses, they would have closed the book right there. But he starts first by saying he's greater than prophets and he's greater than any angelic being. He's greater than all. Yes, the old system was given by the very angels of God. But the new one comes from the very Son of God himself. They are ministering spirits, but he is the Son Jesus' ministry was superior to the prophets. It was superior to the angels. Third, in chapter 3, Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior even to Moses. Now, if you were an Old Testament saint, Moses would be the equivalent of our Jesus. He was the Redeemer. No one came even close to the significance in the Jewish people's hearts than Moses did. He was supreme. And yet, the author of Hebrews spends a significant part of this letter explaining. Moses was great. He was God's servant. And he did the most amazing thing, or God did through him, the most amazing and spectacular and significant thing that ever happened prior to Christ's coming. But he is like a house. He is like the steward of a house, a wonderful house, a great house. And he even was a faithful steward. But Christ is the owner of the house. He is the son. He is the heir. Moses was great. But Christ is greater you can imagine the people coming to the believers and asking, how could you ever turn your back on Moses? You can imagine family members, mothers and fathers coming to their Christian children who are now considered unbelievers and maybe even dead. How could you turn your back on Moses? Clearly, he was God's greatest messenger and servant, to which the author replied, Indeed, he was. Christ is greater. Christ is superior. Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the Son. Therefore, he is superior to Moses. Not only that, Christ is not only superior to Moses, but he offered something superior to what Moses offered. Moses brought the people to the promised land to offer them rest. But Christ offers them eternal rest. Christ offers a superior rest, number four. Look at chapter four, verses eight and nine. 
For if Joshua, you remember, Moses died while looking into the promised land, but God would not allow him to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua did instead. And so the author says, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, and God did as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that none will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The example of disobedience that we see in the Jewish believers who entered the land, but did not enter the kingdom of God. He offers a better rest. The rest God offered to the prom- in the promised land was only a shadow of the salvation that would be offered through Christ. Theirs was a temporary rest, but ours is a eternal, an eternal rest in the very presence of God because of the work of Christ which brings us peace with God. Not only that, Christ not only offered us a superior rest, being superior himself to Moses and to the prophets, but he also offered a superior priesthood. A superior priesthood. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't shrink back. Don't turn away. Press on. Draw near. Get closer. Be faithful. You see, the old priesthood, in the old priesthood, no one was allowed to draw near to God. And we're going to see the significance of this more profoundly when we get there. When he says, therefore, let us draw near. Not even the priests could do that. Only one priest could draw near to the presence of God. And that was the high priest. And he could only do it in the temple or in the tabernacle once a year. But before he did that, as the author will explain to us, he had to make purification for his own sins. And then he would make purification for the sins of the people. And then he would die and someone would take his place. But Jesus is a superior high priest. And by the way, some will say you evangelical Christians believe that you don't need a priesthood. While others, Roman Catholics in particular, Mormons, believe that, you do, that we do need a priesthood. Isn't the priesthood all through Scripture? We need, you need a priesthood. You're veering off of the biblical path to which we replied, No, sir. We agree we need a priest. But he is Christ, our eternal high priest. And brothers and sisters, there's something instructive about that for us. Not only in apologetics, in substantiating the glory of Christ over all, and our faithfulness to him to the exclusion of all, all else. But it's also instructive to us in this. We even do not come to God directly. 
We can be so flippant about this, our privilege of being able to go into the throne room of God. And we, if we're not careful, if our understanding of the word of God is not correct, we think we can do that by ourselves. Jesus paid the price. He purified me. I can walk into the presence of God. And that's not true. You have no access into the presence of God except through our high priest who is Christ. There is no way to approach the Father. We would be incinerated. We must come to him in Christ, our great high priest. The priesthood still exists, but it is all summed up in one person. Our eternal high priest, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a superior priest. In fact, he is the eternal high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, chapters 5 through 7, the author pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds. He understood that every Jew would need to know, where's the priesthood? We've got to have a priest. Where's the priesthood? And how is it that Jesus can uh, fit the bill for being a sufficient high priest for us? If you're going to say the old priesthood is out, you better be able to demonstrate that Christ, who is not even from the tribe of Levi, is legitimately a high priest. Three chapters. He is not a priest after Levi. He is greater even than Levi. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. A priest who lived during the time of Abraham, before the Ten Commandments were ever given, before Levi was ever born, before the Levitical priesthood was ever established. We have no idea what Melchizedek's genealogy was, where he came from. We have no record that he ever died. And the author says, that's just like Christ. He is from eternity to eternity. He is a priest forever. In chapter 7, verse 25, one of the most precious truths of this book Verse 23, just to give some context. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since, here we go, he always lives to make intercession for us. The Lord Jesus prays for you. You're facing a trial right now? He is praying for you. If it were not for Him praying for you, pleading with the Father to be merciful and gracious and apply His payment on your behalf, we would have no hope. He always lives to make intercession for us. When we pray, We don't know how to pray as we ought. Paul talks about that in Romans. We have no idea how to pray. We throw up words. We throw up emotions. We throw up groanings. And the Holy Spirit takes that to Christ and says, give this to the Father. He always lives to make intercession for us. It's as if Jesus was saying, 
to see my sister is suffering. May it not be in vain, Father. Do not let it be in vain. This brother in the Lord, my child for whom I die, is being tempted. Don't let him fall, Lord. Father, don't let him fall. Uphold him. He said to Peter, Satan has required to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. As our great high priest, he always lives to make intercession for us. When you come and ask me to pray for you, I do. But my prayers for you are nothing compared to the glorious prayers, the glorious and effectual prayer of the Son of God Himself who always prays perfectly for the glory of God and for your good. And so the Lord Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He offers a superior rest. He offers a superior priesthood. But more than that, He offers a superior sacrifice. The beginning of chapter 7 and most of chapter 10. Before Christ came, sacrifices had to be offered every day by the thousands to cover the sins of the people. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the people. The priests never rested from their labor. They had to offer sacrifices every day and every day of the year. But the Lord Jesus, as the eternal high priest, offered one sacrifice when he offered himself. He was the perfect priest and he was the perfect sacrifice. One sacrifice, sufficient, not just to cover. It was not an Old Testament kafar. It was once for all delivered up for the saints, for the purification of sins. He did not just cover but he was to cleanse and forgive the sins of all who would believe. Look at chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the, word of the, <clears throat> but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. If you were to go into a Roman Catholic church today, they would have a mass, and they would give you a wafer, and they would tell you that it is a host. It is the host. It is Christ's body. And Christ must suffer every day. Every time you look at a cross in a Roman Catholic church, it is a crucifix, not an empty cross, but one with Jesus still suffering. He suffers every day. Every time someone takes the wafer, he is crucified again. He suffers again. But the author of Hebrews says, no, no. He suffered once for all. For the forgiveness of sins. Oh beloved. If your hope. For salvation. 
is in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is vain. Your hope is a zero without the rim. It is nothing. And it will be useless on that day. Look at chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The priest never sat down. There was no place to sit in the temple proper. Why? There was no place for a priest to rest. There was no rest. Only the Lord Jesus could rest after he finished his eternal work. Not only that, but with the superior sacrifice, Jesus inaugurated a superior covenant. A superior covenant. Look at chapters 8 and 9. In fact, God had to establish a new covenant. Because the old covenant was unable to save anyone. It only had the power to condemn men and to cover their sin until a better covenant could be established through the ministry of the Messiah. Do you understand, do we not, that the Ten Commandments could save no one? It could only condemn. It could only condemn. And the only thing the Levitical priesthood could do after a person is condemned by the law is offer a way of covering sin until such time as it could be cleansed by the promised Messiah. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Go back with me just briefly. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in, the, in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Come, know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Who said that? The prophet Jeremiah promised Israel one day this covenant that we have to go through every, every day, every single day, making a covering for all the bad things we do. Someday, that's going to be unnecessary because there will be a new covenant through the Lamb of God who is the high priest forever. And Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he established the Lord's Supper and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. What you have received by the Mercy of God is the new and living way. Chapter 10, verse 20 says, Therefore, brethren, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, a new way. And it's not just new, it's living, it's alive. It's not about death anymore. 
The death was finalized in the death of Christ. Now it's new and it's living and it's all about Christ because it comes from Him and through Him and for His glory back to Him. In the end of chapter 10 then, the author warns us that there are really only two options. We can choose Christ who is God's greatest gift to mankind and is infinitely superior to any religious system known to man. Or we can choose the judgment of God reserved for those who reject God's greatest gift. Look at verses 28 through 31. Anyone, this is chapter 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is, the author says, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you reject Christ, you will face God's judgment. Rather than letting life's pressures and persecutions turn you away from Christ, we should remember how the Old Testament's persevered in their faith, even in the face of extreme persecution. Chapter 11 then offers a series of biographical sketches of men and women who persevered and were in the end found faithful. And this is called the Hall of Faith. And I'll give you just a sampling of it. Chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back dead, <clears throat> they're dead, by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, all, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being des destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would be made perfect. And the amazing thing about these stories is that each of these men and women stood against insurmountable odds like Lady Jane Grey did. Insurmountable conditions, even though they had not experienced the fulfillment of God's promise. God promised something better that would come, but not in this life. 
Their faith was grounded not in what they might experience in this life, but in what God had promised for the next to all who finish well. You see, the eternal rest God promised them is fulfilled in the eternal rest God's promised us in Christ. The Old Testament saints are incomplete without us. And together we will live before the face of God in the endless experience of eternal rest, eternal joy. And so how should we view our trials when we face them in this life? Well, chapter 12 answers that question. God allows hardship in our lives to train us, to discipline us, to strengthen us in our faith in the Lord Jesus. And when we face trials and even persecution, we should look to Christ. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was placed before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, beloved, do you see how great a gift has been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing to compare with him. No wonder the Apostle Paul could say, as for me, to live is Christ. To die, gain. He knew who it was he had believed in. He believed that Christ was able to keep everything he had entrusted to him against that day. Hebrews is an important book for us to study together. Because while it may be that you will never have to choose between Christ and life, there most certainly will come times when you will have to choose between Christ and that promotion on the job. Or Christ and some significant friendship or relationship or Christ and your reputation at school. I had a brother came to me this morning and rejoicing. So what are you so happy about? Because I've got myself a reputation. I was on the job and someone complained to the boss that I was quoting scripture. So praise God. Christ and your reputation. Christ and your career. Christ in your comfort. And when that moment comes, will you stand firm? What will you choose on that day? The Apostle Paul was faced with this choice many, many times. And his answer was, whatever things were gained to me, those things I had counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. It's like, as Jesus said, a man who was walking through a field and he stumbled upon a treasure. He covered it up. He went home. He sold everything he had to buy that field. 
That's what it's like to gain Christ. Nothing else matters. So on that day, beloved, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Don't allow yourself to be tempted to turn away from Christ, to say like Peter did, I never knew him. Don't do it. He is everything. And he will never deny you. And this is the faith that we are called to. It is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is promised by God that this world can offer no promise that is not infinitely eclipsed by the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So stand firm, beloved. Stand firm.